Happy Monday, listeners, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Brianne Fallon, and he's... Dave McConaughey, and joining us as well is... David Robertson, live from uh, Scotland. That's right. We're so international. It's three continents here. This is quite it something. Is. The power so of the interwebs. Indeed. A, a legitimate 20-hour time difference across the, <laughs> the three of us. Yes, we're actually recording this on different days. Yeah. How's the future, Brienne? Uh, the, fu- the future is tired. The future is lacking coffee. <laughs> and the future is its very early. Let's just put it that way. The immediate future, however, for the listeners is this week's podcast, and it is, in fact, by my colleague David McConaughey, and it's entitled Straight White American Jesus, the podcast, and it's with Bradley Onishi. So take it away, Dave. Welcome. My name is David McConaughey, and today I'm joined by Dr. Bradley Onishi, Associate Professor of Religion at Skidmore College in New York. He's the co-author of Christian Mysticism, An Introduction to Contemporary Theoretical Approaches, and the author of The Sacrality of the Secular, a major work about the philosophy of religion. Today, however, he's here uh, as the co-host with Dan Miller of the really excellent podcast, Straight White American Jesus. Brad, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, and you know I know you share it with everyone. But for those that that haven't come across this yet, um, where where did you get the idea uh, for this podcast? So in the kind of aftermath of Trump's election, Dan and I got together and talked about uh, wanting to share our stories and also wanting to share kind of our scholarship on evangelicalism and uh, American religion. Uh, for those who haven't listened, I uh, my story is basically that I converted to evangelicalism when I was 14. And by the time I was 20, I was a full-time minister. I was married and I was really on my way toward a kind of like life in ministry and in the evangelical world. Uh, all of that changed, of course, and uh, I'm still in the religion game, as I like to say, but uh, just from a, a much different perspective. And so uh, for Dan and I, we wanted to help folks um, have an insider perspective and understanding of white evangelicalism uh, in this country. We also wanted to provide a kind of historical and social scientific lens on white evangelicalism. Our major goal is basically this. why We want to explain why Donald Trump appears more like Jesus than any other politician uh, white evangelicals have ever encountered. And so we do that uh, through both telling of our stories and uh, a, a kind of um, tracing the history of evangelicalism in this country. I, I found that mix of personal experience blending into academic rigor, blending into full-on interviews with really important scholars like Armory Griffith and Randall Balmer. Um, it, it's really compelling. Um, d- did did you know from the beginning that you had uh, that kind of really effective dialogue between those two halves that, that you, you and uh, Dan both share, right? Share a background. Yeah. You know, it, it all comes so naturally because uh, evangelicalism was my world. I mean, I, I was, it's hard to explain how zealous I was when I converted, you know, I was that 16 year old kid who went from, Stand, uh, you know, sneaking around the back of movie theaters to do teenage stuff to standing out in front of the movie theater trying to convert people. 
And, and so when evangelicalism is that much um, a part of your life, uh, reflecting on it uh, is, is sometimes painful, but it comes very naturally. And so Dan and I knew we could do that. Uh, we also knew we had a passion for um, enabling a, uh, or creating a platform for scholars to help a, a wider audience understand, like, how is it that more white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump than for George W. Bush or Mitt Romney? Like, how does that happen? Well, you know, we knew there's people out there who could who could help us understand that. And so we wanted to kind of just provide space uh, for those uh, analytical, historical, critical, sociological uh, perspectives to all be unrolled. What I take from from the moment that we're in right now is that it, we really have a great opportunity, right, as as scholars, as outsiders, to to kind of present some of the research that's been done, especially in those kind of theoretical perspectives that the public often um doesn't seem because they're framed in language or framed in, you know, uh, books that are, that are hard to market to public audiences. But, but the insider approach really gives you that colloquial language. It gives you the, the fundamental access to an authenticity when you, when you speak about it that makes when you switch then to the, to the academic narrative, um, so much more, uh, alive. When you say, it's hard to convince audiences kind of how zealous you were. There was a moment when you were describing the podcast, um, how you would go in the high school lunchroom up to students that were your, your high school peers and evangelize to them, uh, at lunch because you were convinced that, um, their immortal souls were, were at risk. And if you did not do everything you could do at that moment, that, um, you were, you were going to leave them behind. Yeah. And you know, one of the goals is, is not to uh, soften or um, uh, uh, make more um, platable the politics and culture of evangelicals in the Trump era. Uh, we are not here to sort of um, make nice in in any case. But what we what I do want to do by telling stories like the one you just you just mentioned, I want people to be able to think themselves into the places of uh, of evangelicals. Um, not so that they can agree, not so that they can accept it, but so they can see the human element in it. It's so easy to reduce those we disagree with, especially those who seem to be harming our public sphere, to just reduce them to uh, something demented, something that's not right, and just sort of push them away as hopeless and helpless and, and whatever. Um, my hope is by sharing my story and Dan's too, that we can show folks that this is a very human uh Culture, it's a very human set of events. It's a very human uh, community. And, and if you can get a window into that, maybe it can help you, you know, when you're at a school board meeting or you're at your um, election for the city council or when you're dealing with parents on your kid's soccer team or having a, a, a Thanksgiving dinner, um, maybe it can give you a, a, a better approach to how to discuss these things with your neighbors, with your fellow citizens, with your colleagues whoever may be. And so anyway, all that to say for me, the, the personal element is really, really important. Um, it, it, it adds something, I think, that um, uh, makes it easier for a general audience to identify with. And it also makes it easier for those who are ex-evangelicals like I am to feel like they have a way in to understand uh, more of the sort of academic discourse surrounding the culture that they're emerging from. Right. 
And and for those um, perhaps um, outside of the U.S., um, it's been a very kind of English um, language discussion, and very much on Twitter um, with folks like Chrissy Stroop and and others who who hashtag X Evangelical um, are talking about their deconversion experiences. That there really is that that kind of two sides um, to what's going on, in the sense that there are uh, some folks that worry that perhaps. Um, uh, the level of honesty that you're approaching this topic, right, is, is, um, unfair, uh, to evangelicals. And, and I think all of the folks that I've heard from have been really forceful advocates for, um, we're not going to dismiss, uh, what's wrong here. And we're going to call out things that we see are wrong. And we feel like we have a space to do that. But, but on the other hand, um, it is about explaining experience and opening dialogue and, and trying to find the allies that, that are there for you. On the other hand, though, uh, do you think, <laughs> I'm guessing that maybe there's been some pushback as well. Can you talk about the kinds of different responses that you've received from those that have been very supportive as uh, ex-evangelical community members to those that are remaining evangelical and may have some um, less than than kind words for the work that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, just to go to the beginning of your question there, uh, you know, my goal is not to, I'm a scholar. Uh, and even when I'm talking about my own experiences, I want to be able to sort of have an analytical lens. And so, you know, on our podcast and in the work we're doing, the goal is never reduction. The goal is never demonization. Um, the goal is always to say, we want to examine these issues um, as best as we can. And that includes returning to sources. Inclu- uh, that includes returning to documents and facts and uh, histories that have been covered over, that people don't know about. I mean, we, we did this on one of our very first episodes uh, with the abortion myth, right? Randall Balmer came on and said, uh, let me outline the history for you regarding the formation of the religious right. It was not about abortion. And the idea that it was is revisionist history in service of an evangelical uh, propaganda or mission. In fact, it was race. And, and, you know, my response to those who would have a problem with that is just to say, we're doing historical work here. Um, if you feel like our historical uh, analysis is off in some way, we can talk about that. But just to say that somehow pointing these things out is unfair or not warranted, um, I just don't buy that. Right. Now, that's, that's, uh, such yeah, a, that's such a good, that's a, such a good response because, you know, it allows you the space to say, like, let's say Darren Dochuk, who would place maybe, um, oil and empire and commercialism, maybe even above race at, at the start of the kind of sure. consolidation of the religious right. And it gives you that space to say, even scholars have disagreements about this, but we can all narrate the problems that we're seeing at the same time. I, I think that's, Exactly right. And it leads to who has kind of responded to the podcast. I can say that mm. we've had two groups respond very positively. One are ex-evangelicals who've said, what you're doing is uh, you're able to speak my language. You speak the language of, of evangelicalism that I came out of. And yet what you're doing is giving me a, a road into understanding the history and all of the cultural and political factors that shaped that uh, that religious community that I'm now emerging from. What it's doing is helping me kind of put my world back together after um, sort of coming out of a, a very strict religious community that and uh, 
most of the time made no sense to me. We've also had many people say, I'm a secular person in Portland, or I'm a reformed Jew in New York City. I have no idea how to understand why white evangelicals are so in love with Donald Trump and why they vote and act and think the way they do. So you're helping me you know, gain a window uh, into a culture that for, for me is completely alien. It just seems so far from my own understanding of the world that I just didn't I didn't know where to start in order to understand all of this. And so um, those two, those two communities have really reached out over uh, you know, Twitter and email and everything else to say um, that they've really appreciated what we're doing. Um, there's been a little bit of pushback, but not much. You know, one of the things that I like to um, tell students and tell, you know, folks I discuss things with is um, I'm, I am totally open as a scholar to argument and debate and dialogue. Those are the, the things I love. But you're not going to out evangelical me. Um, I, <laughs> I, I'm like level expert at evangelical, right? So when it comes to theology and language and jargon and colloquialisms and cliches, uh, I'm fluent in that. And so when when you want to discuss those things with me, just know that I'm going to be speaking your language better than you. And so um, I, uh, we're, we're, you're not going to get the upper hand on me. And and the last thing is. I'm not going to assume, and I think this is part of the, the evangelical community online is, is the work they're doing, is we need to stop assuming that if you call yourself a Christian, that that means you are a good person. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not calling Christians bad persons, okay? Bad people. Do not, you know, do not um, come at me on Twitter for that. What I'm saying is, is there is a privilege in this country that if you're a straight white Christian, especially a straight white Christian male, you're given a kind of cover as, oh, you must be, uh, you know, a true good old uh, fashioned patriot that we just sort of have this assumption. And part of the work we're doing, along with many other people, is just saying um, we need to stop giving that benefit of the doubt just because someone claims those identities. And we need to just be willing to look very uh, critically and with an unflinching gaze on what's actually happening in those communities. That could be everything from church too, and sexual misconduct and abuse. That could be authoritarian structures. That can be uh, supporting candidates who are authoritarian and abusive, whatever it may be. And so anyway, all of that is part of the work I feel like we're doing and um, yeah, we'll continue to do and, and um, are very proud to do. I'm tempted to ask whether you think you would ever run out of topics, but, but <laughs> since, since, you, since you describe since you describe your access to evangelicals as both kind of like fluency in a language, but also access to a world that is very closed off, right? Inaccessible to those that are not fully immersed in it. It, it, it feels like you can just narrate any aspect of an evangelical's life, how they think about uh, the economy, how they think about, uh, death, how they think about marriage, how they think about the value of life, and every issue, right, has to be encapsulated in some way by that worldview. It has to be addressed with fluency by that by that language. Do Do you feel that way that you, you, there's really never there's ne this is a, an eternal wellspring for you? Well, you know, I don't know about eternal, but what I will say is, when you're in something long enough, you have the muscle memory to either know how to do it or to find the person who does. Mm. And so, I, you know, I, I don't want to make it out that the evangelical community in this country, including the white evangelical community in this country, is homogeneous. Uh, there's a lot of difference between 
small house churches in West Texas and Liberty uh, Baptist uh, with the Falwell family. There's a lot of difference between, you know, um, the vineyards in Southern California and what's happening in rural Georgia. Uh, with all that said, uh, at least in the Trump era, there is no shortage of uh, need to discuss things related to evangelical culture. Uh, and so, at, at least for the moment, um, it's not hard to find things that are not only relevant, but seem very pressing for our public sphere. It it reminds me of the way that people have spoken about Trump's election as a net gain for the media, even amid its attacks, that, they, that the constant stream of um, uh, scandals or uh, things that sound like scandals to some people uh, generates that kind of a gravity of its own, and that we're lucky as religion scholars who happen to work on things that are so central to understanding what's going on in American politics right now. It makes me feel very fortunate, uh, but also it, it, it seems to carry a lot of responsibility. Do you feel that weight as well? I do. Uh, and, you know, I think I, I know there'll be people out there in the religious studies world who will say, uh, you know, Dan and Brad, you are blurring the lines between insider and outsider. You're blurring the lines between scholar and data. And mm. um, I, I understand that perspective. I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, so when Dan and I go into any episode we do, uh, we want to make sure that as we tell anecdotes from our past, as we recount what it was like to come home and, and uh, have your family not be there and have your first thought be maybe the rapture happened and everyone got taken away and I didn't. Uh, as we tell those stories, we always want to balance that with very rigorous scholarship. Like we want to do our homework. We want to go to the primary sources. We want to go to the data. We want to make sure we have that right so that we can um, you know, make sure as scholars and as uh, people who have a platform uh, that we are owning up and responding to that responsibility. Right. What it, it also strikes me that, that it's kind of like you had an ethnographic project that you were living yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then, and then you decided that the project was over and then you realized that you could actually, that you had collected all of this data that was really valuable. So, so from one perspective, you know, it, is it blurring the line between insider and outsider? Well, it, it, it it, it might be, but on the other hand, y you were you were living as in the same way that an ethnographer might live as if they were doing full immersion fieldwork. Uh, and now you've pulled back from being within that perspective. And now that you're not in that perspective, you can clearly demarcate your outsiderness, right? In relation to your previous insiderness. And and I, I think I think that's right. And, and in ways that I, I, I think ethnographers experience, you begin, you know, when you're an ethnographer, you form relationships with a community. And even when you might find the politics or practices of that community detestable at, at turning points, um, you know, you, you, the relationships you form uh, affect you, right? And believe me, I still have friends and many family members who are part of the evangelical world. They are people for whom I have great affection. Um, I love them. And so for me to uh, do this project, it, again, means uh, I want to avoid reduction and demonization, but I, I also want to have the courage and the audacity to like, like point as critical and as unflinching of a, a, an eye we can on, on what's happening. Right. So, so do you think, um, 
and and feel free to share specific episodes that you'd like to direct people to if they come to mind. Um, are there things that really resonate best with the community where where the the clarity of that kind of like you know worldview switch that you've had um, that you're revealing to to everyone uh, really appears best with you know your your uh, gold star podcast episodes? <laughs> well, <laughs> the thing we've been focusing on this season has been. Uh, beyond belief. And what we want to do is say, uh, not only what we want to do is explain not only what evangelicals believe, but what their culture and beliefs do for them. And so let me give you an example. Uh, we've spoken several times on our podcast about abortion and cultures of life, quote unquote. And one of the things we've tried really hard to explain is that, uh, yes, there is a focus on abortion because many rank and file evangelicals go to bed at night believing that any form of abortion is equivalent to murder. Okay. However, there's a whole nother package of goods that come with that belief. Uh, I know personally, from my own experience, that every time that I explained to my church elders that I wanted to vote for a Democrat because their emphasis on equality or social justice or healthcare seemed more in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would sort of say to me, look, you can do that if you want, but what, you, what you're condoning is the murder of millions of children. Why do I bring that up? Because that one belief in abortion meant that I could turn off my brain completely when it came to all other issues. So when I went into a voting booth, I did not have to consider whether or not uh, all the things related to healthcare reform, uh, education initiatives, tax hikes, immigration, all of those things meant for who I should vote for. What I was going to vote for was who is pro-life, quote unquote, who is against abortion. And so I got to turn off a whole set of moral and ethical decisions. I got to disengage politically and go to bed at night knowing that I had done the right thing, that I was a good person because I stood against murder. And, and that happens all over the place in evangelical culture. I could give you similar examples when it comes to apocalypticism, it could give you similar examples when it comes to God and guns or gender. And so what our audience has been really reacting to is uh, unpacking what beliefs do for you uh, more than just simply explaining sort of theological frameworks or, uh, you know, evangelical doctrines. And I'm, and I'm so thrilled <laughs> to hear you present it in that way. We've we've been having kind of a, a a religious literacy discussion on Twitter. Some of us going around, and that really strikes me as one of the kind of operational moves that religious studies really can take advantage of. That it's not simply the content that we can present; it's the critical appraisal of the work that religious that religion does in particular instances for particular people. And so on abortion, the work that it does is potentially um, make hard political decisions a lot easier, right? It clarifies mm -hmm. what the expectations are for them. And, and as an element of religious literacy, presenting religion in that way to the public is a really powerful way to think about it. It's very different than thinking of, about religion as simply a collection of beliefs that we hold uh, and, and then not really much beyond that, right? It is. And you know that, you know, in every intro to religion class, most, most scholars and teachers are, are not going to ask, you know, let's ask their students to make a list of what Hindus and, is, and Muslims and Christians and everyone else believes. You know, they're going to ask, uh, let's try to define religion. And then they're going to say, 
what does religion do for people? I know the question I ask my students on the first day is, why do people do religion? And when I say, why do people do religion? They immediately get away from belief and they start raising their hands. And it's like community, tradition, family, belonging, identity. And as soon as we start talking about why do people do religion rather than what do religious people believe, all of the dimensions of religious studies opens up. And what you see is that when we study religion, we're also studying race. We're also studying embodiment. We're also studying gender. We're also studying group formation. Uh, I always tell kids who want to major in religion, I'm like, look, when you sign up with us, you get to study it all, right? You don't have to compartmentalize what you're doing into one domain. Uh, studying religion means studying the human condition writ large. You know, one of the things I like to say is that when you study religion, you get uh, a window into human conditions, right? That means communities and worlds that at one time probably seemed indecipherable. And you also get a window into the human condition uh, in a way that I think is really unique um, in the humanities, yes, but in religious studies, even more so. I'm so pleased to hear you say that. It, it's really been um, quite a pleasure to speak with you today about this. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And uh, where can people find uh, your podcast uh, online? Yeah, so you can find Straight White American Jesus on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Google, on most places that people find uh, podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Bradley Onishi. And uh, we still do have a Straight White American Jesus uh, Facebook page as well. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So thanks so much for that, Bradley and David. Uh, very interesting and really uh, cool to feature a, another podcast, um, you know, spread the podcast love. It immediately it's, makes me think of, um, I'm going to be honest, American politics and, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> That space, um, David, when you sort of lined up this podcast, um, did you make any sort of connection to that um, that idea? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brad, Brad and I are pretty explicit about it toward towards the end there. And, and one of the things that's really he, he's kind of and I don't want to use the word unapologetic, but he's really honest about the fact that this is a conversation that in religious studies in the U.S. is delicate, and they're taking he and Dan Miller, his co-host, are are really trying to take it head on and without um, without blinking because some of the stuff that's going on with the alignment of uh, politics and religion in the U.S. right now is really unsavory. And we haven't been willing to talk about it in ways that are critical, uh, but academic. And so they're really trying to kind of bring a personal touch, but also that critical perspective to it. And and for those that are outside of the U.S., like like you and uh, David today, are um, it can be hard to kind of appreciate how united religion and politics at this current moment that we're in in 2019 is. Yeah, it's definitely not something that I think I fully comprehend um, from an Australian context. Um, but I can definitely say that, you know, in Australia, it would be naive to think they weren't connected, um, mm. particularly when you look at things like um, prayer breakfasts and things like that that are um, quite strong um, in our parliament and a sort of tradition at the moment of of Christianity amongst our leaders, although we've we've recently had a female prime minister who um, was a, an atheist, so 
I mean, it's it's a topic that I think covers us all, but it's it would be almost be interesting to have a discussion about the differences between the countries that we have represented in our in our interviewers and in our podcasters. And I know we have some podcasts coming up on the topic, quite frankly. But I mean, David, what do you think that the rest of the world really needs to know about it? I think what people internationally really need to know is that there is a new configuration of Christians that have the ear of the president that have the, uh, you know, the pulse of Republicans, people like Paula white, who was recently appointed um, the spiritual liaison in outreach from the Trump uh, white house. Uh, she's a representative of um, prosperity, charismatic, um, Christianity. And, and while there have been a long history of, uh, prominent charismatic, uh, health and wealth, uh, pastors in the U S uh, Pat Robertson's run for president in the late 1980s is a great example. It's, you know, it's almost 30 years since that happened. And in those 30 years, they are now at the, at the heart of a new kind of American, um, configuration of Christianity and that intersection of politics and religion has never been stronger. Uh, what's really important for international communities to kind of appreciate about it is that though that is the conversation at the top and does reflect potentially 40 or 50 million Americans, or maybe even 60 or 70 million Americans, depending on how you count the numbers, America is a country of 330 million Americans, uh, only about 120 million of whom actually show up to vote in elections, and and it, and so as a scholar, it can be really frustrating because the narrative that you hear uh, numerically is not the narrative of all America, and the narrative politically that shows up when we have elections is also not reflective of all of America, and that's and that's really challenging because the narrative with Twitter and you know 24 hour news coverage is so strong and so prominent. Um, next week, though, we are, we have uh, something that's a little less uh, political um, in the U.S. at least, and a little <laughs> bit more political <laughs> in Europe. Um, Brian, do you want to tell us about that? Um, so next week we have another interview from Sydney Castillo, who I think is officially becoming known as the powerhouse. <laughs> and <laughs> um, it's it's an interview kind of on the concept of atheisms, plural. Um, Sydney interviewed David Herbert and Josh Bullock, and they will be talking about unbelief as a nuanced phenomenon, the sociality of non-religion across Europe. Really looking forward to that one, I think. But apart from that, all there is left to say is thanks, thanks. For, thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Bach, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com.co.
co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter youtube itunes and other portals thanks for listening